Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Deputy Editor Josie Tutty and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our senior agencies reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. Our news editor Paul Woolbank. Hi there Josie. And later on, we'll be talking to ex-McCann's CEO and smart founder, Ben Lilly, about being a pain to manage. So I was just a pain in the ass. When I look back, I'm pretty embarrassed at the what a cliche I was as the difficult to work with senior creative. Going from creative to business owner. Yeah, again, I've worked in a lot of agencies, but I've certainly never, never run uh, an agency or a business. And I was genuinely just clueless about how to do that. And the problem with big agencies. The big agencies, traditional agencies, are very, very slow to evolve as the market and, and technology uh, evolves around them. And I think that's still the case today. But first, the week's topics. Spark Foundry swallows Blue 449. Facebook responds to the ACCC's digital platforms inquiry. 10 chooses a new bachelor. And NRL launches the new season with a new ad. So let's kick off with Blue 449 as it is no longer a thing, in Australia at least, as publicists announced this week that the agency would be absorbed into Spark Foundry. Now, Abby, I have a feeling you might have seen this one coming. Look, I <laughs> I did, yes. Um, I approached publicist for comment uh, in very, very early February after hearing quite a few rumours in the market, but they came back to me and unfortunately said that it was incorrect and that I shouldn't run a factually incorrect story, uh, which was frustrating, but, uh, you know, they are a publicly listed company, so... Uh, you know, if, if if that story did come out before they were ready, it, ready, it could have sent them into a trading halt. Uh, but nevertheless, I was on the money, which is good to know. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it is quite an interesting one with Spark Foundry and Blue Four Four Nine, and kind of want to take you through a bit of the history of these two publicist agencies. So, in two thousand and seventeen, publicist rebranded Media Vest to Spark Foundry. And the rebrand of Media Vest to Spark Foundry came three years after Media Vest was split from Starcom. So essentially, Spark Foundry started as Starcom and then became Media Vest and then became Spark Foundry. Uh, and, and it operates as its own entity. But Blue 449 is, uh, also has seen a bit of change. So it was founded three years ago when Match Media became Blue 449 and Match Media was formed in 2003 by John Preston and John is now the chairman of Publicis Media but when Publicis bought Match uh, Match Media he sort of a condition of that was that Match Media wouldn't become Blue 449 but obviously that didn't happen and it did become Blue 449 but um Interesting to note as well, Blue the Blue 449 brand will still operate in the US and the UK. It will actually be part of Spark, but everywhere else uh, the, the name will be changed. Now, that's a lot of name changes. Yes. Is that a bit of a problem for an agency? Look, I think certainly in the media agency 
realm, they're really having to define themselves in the market. And it is a really, really big point of, of or t- time of change for media agencies. And, you know, to be fair, I think people, you know, people are always going to have things to say about names. It's like naming a kid, right? Some people are <laughs> going to love it and some are going to hate it. You kind of have to have to pick a name and stick with it. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, publicists uh, have said, you know, this this uh, merger isn't about cost savings. So that uh, John Preston said, uh, we've not had to demonstrate any savings. Uh, and he's also mentioned that there won't be any redundancies as the business is set up to service all its clients with the people that it has now. So, yeah, look, I think there has been a lot of name changing in the past, but I also do think that is part of an evolution process. The market is consolidating. We're not just seeing it in media agencies. We've seen it with JWT and Wonderman becoming Wonderman Thompson. We've seen it with VML and YNR becoming VML YNR. I don't think that this is just kind of a one-off thing. We are seeing a lot of consolidation in the market and this is just a further trend that you know that we've seen within publicists. It is a good point, though, that uh, he's an industry that talks about the the importance of branding and the importance of names and that for their clients, and yet uh, completely and utterly at sea uh, with their own branding themselves and uh, no real long term commitment to a name. I mean, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm playing the defense card for media agencies <laughs> at the moment, but you have to remember that they are they are also a business, and and if their branding that they've chosen isn't working for them. They're entitled to pivot it to, to to make it work for them, and and I, I I see your point, and I and I, but I also think you know things happen, and and if a branding isn't working, well then they need to change it. So it is, and I think the interesting thing about this merger is Spark Foundry on a global level does quite well and has quite a few global clients, but Blue Four Four Nine is quite strong in the local market, but doesn't have many global clients. So I think that's why they've picked those two agencies to kind of merge together. So Blue Four Four Nine now has sort of the global scale and the capabilities to get more global clients. The other thing that's quite interesting with the merger as well on the topic of clients is conflicts. So in Australia, Spark Foundry has Diageo and Blue 449 has Pernod Ricard. So it's going to be quite interesting to see what happens there. Uh, John Preston has said where conflicts may exist, they're working on a roadmap and they did get um, – tell their clients quite early on and the two offices in Sydney are going to remain separate. So I think that is how they're planning on on working through the conflict there is they can't fit in one office because there's going to be around 185 people, I think, once they bring the two agencies together. So they are going to keep the, office, the offices separate, but that's something I think we'll just have to watch play out. Time will tell, as we always say on the My Brother cast. <laughs> Now, next up, The Guardian, Facebook and ACMA have all made their responses to the Australian Competition and Consumer Commissions, better known as the ACCC's Digital Platforms Inquiry this week. 
Um, let's start with ACMA or the Australian Communications and Media Authority. There's lots of acronyms in this story um, who have made a grab to become the main regulator for digital platforms and online content in Australia. Paul, what's ACMA's argument here? Well, it's really interesting with this, and you're right about uh, about this acronym soup. It's, <laughs> uh, yeah, it does get a bit much. Uh, yeah, so their argument is that uh, because they're currently the regulator for the um, for the media industry, that they uh, they see themselves as being in the position to be the super regulator that the ACCC is um, arguing um, is needed for the digital platforms. That uh, whether they have the capability for it or not, as we saw with the um, with the various schemes that they were put in charge of running, uh, they really struggled with that because they didn't have the in-house expertise to run out the um, publisher innovation scheme, and they struggled with that internally, and that was why one of the reasons why it was so late being released, and uh, uh, why there was a lot of dissatisfaction amongst publishers when it was released. Uh, so. They would have to bring in a lot more people and a lot more skills to to manage the digital platforms, but uh, they they do have a point here. And they also called out that the ACCC's got a somewhat old fashioned view of the media that uh, they have that vertical um, view of uh, media, media organisations that you know you've got a publisher, you've got a broadcaster, you've got um, a social media service. Whereas ACMA, uh, I think, correctly make the point that it's uh, it's more a horizontal thing that uh, um, and the ACCC itself approved the nine Fairfax merger on exactly that mm-hmm. uh, basis. So uh, uh, so ACMA do have some good points to this, but it's interesting watching the bureaucracies all fighting over the turf and some of them are obviously feeling a little bit threatened uh, with uh, the current proposals. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's again, it's going to be time will tell on uh, which bureaucrats reign supreme over that. And this is obviously ACCC's preliminary report into their investigation. That's right. So how much longer do we have of all this to go? Well, it's due to be handed down in early June and uh, the ACCC, to its credit, tends to tends to meet its own deadlines, unlike some other agencies. <laughs> but uh, the thing is with this, of course, is that this is going to happen after the election and it's not looking good for the current government getting returned, uh, it, you've got to be honest about. And so it's quite possible that uh, we'll have a completely new government and, it's, and that's going to change things dramatically. Um, we may not see this same hostility towards uh, the ABC and uh, and the foreign known digital platforms and maybe not so much uh, love and attention towards the incumbent Australian broadcasters that the current government gives. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens when, when they do hand down their report and how the government of the day receives it. And Facebook have also responded to the ACCC's preliminary report. They were predictably not very happy with it. Um, What did did they have to say for themselves? Well, they described this as unprecedented. And uh, when they were asked, um, their global um, regulatory uh, bosses that were in Australia this week, um, they uh, they were quite scathing about it, um, saying that the, no one else in the, around the world had uh, recommended anything like uh, what the ACCC are proposing. So uh, yeah, they are they are definitely not happy about it. And interestingly, they made the same point that ACMA made that um, that it's a very much a, um, an old fashioned view of looking at the industry. You have to say that uh, Facebook are under a lot of pressure on a lot of fronts on this, though, because of course it's not just the um, it's not just the um, the ACCC report. There's uh, uh, various privacy issues kicking around for Facebook. There's uh, a lot more investigations there, and of course there's proposals to tax them more as well. 
And just quickly, The Guardian also had their response this week. What did they have to say? Well, I think The Guardian's response is probably the most interesting for the advertising industry because they've suggested a complete overhaul of the programmatic um, supply chain, if you like, um, of bringing in a verifiable, auditable system where uh, uh, buyers and sellers in the programmatic space know what the prices are, know what the markups are, and it brings in a lot of transparency across what is, as they rightly describe, as a deliberately opaque system. Uh, and this is really, I think, the thrust of uh, what the advertising industry should be looking for from this, the ACCC report. And do you think that's a bit of pie-in-the-sky thinking, or is that potentially ever going to happen? Uh, I think it's pretty ambitious. <laughs> but uh, but really, this is a lot of this is in the hands of the publishers. If they, if they insisted on this, um, the, they hold a lot of power in this uh, marketplace. And next up, Ten has picked a new bachelor for 2019, and this time it's an astrophysicist called Matt Agnew. Um, this is a bit of a change from last year's Honey Badger. But Abby, do you think this is the show Ten needs at the moment? Because there's a bit of a gap in the programming schedule, isn't there? I mean, it is the Ten show. Uh, they certainly need something. Uh, I think they're... Uh, sort of yeah gap of programming at the moment with Bondi Rescue on in the 7:30 time slot which is really evident in its in its overall audience share and also in its overnight metro ratings uh i think the thing about this announcement that makes it quite interesting is we've sort of moved back to the everyday australian as The Bachelor, uh, which I'm not entirely sure if that will pay off for 10. I think what's interesting to note, Wallabies player Nick Cummins' season of The Bachelor, which was the most recent season, was actually the highest uh, rating yet. So it, it managed 940,000 Metro viewers on its on its uh, premiere and 1.241 million on the finale. So it, it rated really, really well for the channel. Uh, Maddie J, who was the season before, Nick Cummins, he was the runner-up on Georgia Love's The Bachelorette's series and he by comparison attracted 846,000 metro viewers uh for the premiere and 1.116 million for the finale so also did quite well but then i think when you look at the bachelorettes and you look at sophie monk who also was was really a high rating bachelorette season for 10 she managed 951,000 viewers on the premiere and 1.640 million for the finale and Georgia Love who was an everyday Australian uh, you could say only managed 655,000 on the premiere and 972,000 on the finale so didn't actually crack the 1 million mark which you know, if you look at Nines Married at First Sight, these sort of staple programs really should be doing. Yeah, and this is, it's an interesting question too, whether that one show on its own is going to be enough to help um, Ten out because there's clearly a um, there's clearly a weakness in Ten's programming overall, and just the one show, even if it does manage to get up to a million viewers, that's really not going to be helping the broader thing. And of course, we're moving to football season now where um, nine and seven have got uh, their respective codes there, which again is going to uh, uh, depress 10 even further. 10 doesn't really have a, a staple sporting program as well, which I think has really hurt it certainly in the in the earlier months of the year and the late months of last year. 
And it is really struggling. I mean, it's being beaten by the ABC almost every night. Uh, and, you know, its share between SBS is is getting closer as well. So I think it does I don't think that the bachelor alone is going to be enough and speaking of football season the NRL has launched its annual premiership campaign created by its agency of record RGA Sydney this week I know there's a lot on your mind you're feeling the pressure of stepping up of the expectations now on your shoulders of the missed opportunities last season and the consequence of failure. But I want you to forget about all of that and just remember who you play for. Now, Paul, do you think this ad is preaching to the converted as some of our commenters have suggested? I really did feel that um, when Abby and I were looking at that ad. Um, it's the production quali- quality is really high. It's a well-made mm. ad, but it, the narrative really isn't. Um, it, it didn't really gel for me. You can see the problems that the NRL has a number of problems, uh, um, and they have to address those. And you can see what they're trying to do of addressing the local suburban and regional clubs there and uh, the way that they've um, put that narrative. But it just didn't seem to connect and uh, didn't really get the excitement, uh, didn't get the adrenaline running for an upcoming season. To me, it kind of smacked of a knockoff Nike ad or something. It was almost Mm. like they'd taken that drama and the big production values and the everyday sort of person, gritty feeling but yeah, I just don't feel the strategy quite connected with that. Abby, do you agree? I think for, for those who haven't seen the ad, it's it's basically um, NRL players kind of before the game with with a voiceover of saying why NRL players often suffer lack of cons a lack of confidence for you know the the fears that they have of of failure. Uh, and it's interesting that you say it was a knockoff. It seems like a knockoff Nike ad because in two thousand and fourteen, RGA actually did an ad for the Soccer World Cup for for Beats by Dr. Dre and the resemblance is quite similar mm-hmm. uh, but basically it's sort of framed in the same way you know you know that pump up kind of music and sort of the the scenes of before the game and getting ready and having someone uh, narrating at the start saying, you know, be tough and do all these things. And yeah, one of our commenters pointed out and I did look at it and I thought it was really quite similar. And, and also I think, you know, if I put my PR cap on and you look at it from a PR perspective, the, the NRL is totally ignoring the massive issues that it has going on Does and it hasn't acknowledged it at all or sort of even even played into that uh, that crisis if you like that they've got going on and you know I'm an avid AFL supporter everyone in our office knows that and that ad certainly didn't make me think oh you know maybe I should pick an NRL team which I'm totally open to doing here in Sydney with my football team Melbourne not being here so I'm the perfect target market but I just I didn't feel like Mm, there's a real strong connection that I should be following this sport and that this sport is a good sport with players that have a lot of respect. Well, maybe, Abby, we can get the audience to help out and uh, nominate what team you should follow. Uh, given Mumbrella's office location, I'll uh, nominate you should follow Souths, but uh, uh, we're open to the listeners uh, putting in their uh, views. Send me an email, drop a comment, let me know. <laughs>
Joining us in the studio, we have Shambles Communications, Gareth Eden-Stite and comedian Cam Knight. Hello. Hey, Josie. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having us. That's all right. Now, if you're wondering why Cam and Gareth are here, that's because they're involved in Pitch to Punchline, which takes place on Monday, the 3rd of June, the week of Mumbrella 360, and will raise funds for mental health charity Batir. Cam is gearing up to mentor 20 applicants for six weeks before they perform at the gala event in front of up to 300 members of the industry at Sydney Opera House, no less. Cam, what's your what's your best advice for dealing with hecklers? Well, sometimes it can be a bit of fun. Sometimes it can really ruin an evening. You've just got to just got to gauge how that goes and put that spot far out pretty quickly. I mean, I enjoy a bit of crowd work every now and then, but yeah, you do have to make sure it doesn't get out of control and you lose the rest of the crowd. I had a, a, a person one time years ago that was so drunk in the crowd and they wanted to get on board and heckle, but they were so drunk they forgot how to speak English, so they were just screaming the word. Heckle, heckle <laughs> at us. It's like, I don't know how to respond to that, you know. <laughs> it's probably worth pointing out, though, that we'll make sure that our event doesn't have any hecklers. I mean, yeah, uh, I it's, will. it's very much a safe environment. So That's no one's going to get on stage and have people going, you fucking fuck up. Yeah. Type of <laughs> no, no, no one's going to say that. I will be. Oh, you mean, I'll be you're... shouting at them so we can experience <laughs> this together. Uh, they'll know how to handle it. But no, I think even... Um, when I'll host uh, the open mic event for them and also host the event at the Opera House, I'll make sure that the crowd is uh, fully warmed up and that everybody understands the uh, situation and what the environment needs and uh, to encourage no heckling, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just going to be a room of love, trust and understanding, isn't <laughs> it, mate? Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to become a standout stand-up or sponsor this cracking event, and why wouldn't you, you can visit pitchtopunchline.com, that's two, the number two, and applications close on the 28th of March. Now, next up, we've got a chat with Ben Lilly, the former CEO of McCann and founder of Smart. Joining us on the Mumbrella cast this week, we have the former chairman and CEO of McCann Australia, Ben Lilly. Ben is now an investor with a specific interest in independent agencies. It's an area he is not unfamiliar with, having made a number of acquisitions when he was running both Smart and McCann. We also on the buttons have our deputy editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. Hello. So, uh, Ben, just to kick things off, I'm going to read a quote from your website, which I think refers to the earlier days in your career. And it says, I kicked off my career as a creative in some great Australian agencies, including George Patterson YNR, JWT and DDB. At least I thought they were great. The feeling wasn't always mutual and I lost my first couple of jobs pretty quickly. I was ambitious and impatient, but no doubt a real pain to manage. Talk me through what happened at these agencies and what that quote refers to. Well, look, I was very lucky, I think, to start out as a creative with uh, George Patterson Bates, which was which is now YNR, and was unquestionably Australia's strong, strongest creative agency at the time. Uh, but I was a junior still learning my way, and it was a very big agency with some very big clients. And after about a year or so, they lost, lost a couple of those big clients and unfortunately a number of cuts and, and I was one of them. Um, so fair to say, uh, quite a blow to start with. 
but luckily I, I then managed to pick up work going around other agencies and that's how I end up doing the rounds quite a bit at firstly as a freelancer and then getting more and more jobs and, and as I gained more jobs and started to win some awards I guess I became um, I gained more confidence uh, but some of those agencies might have said I became more arrogant or more, more difficult to manage. Uh, funnily enough, though, about six years later, after I had, I felt like I'd done the rounds of mainly Melbourne agencies by that stage, I then got a phone call from the new creative director at George Patterson, effectively headhunting me to go back there. And I thought, all right, well, now's my, my chance to either A, show them, or maybe B, get revenge. So <laughs> I went with the, the interview, it went surprisingly well, and they made me a very good offer to go back as a, as a senior creative. But to be honest, I... By that stage, I think I did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder, shoulder creatively because Pat had fired me, dumped me pretty unceremoniously all those years earlier. And it was quite a blow for a young creative at that time. So I wasn't a great employee, but also I, I guess I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder as well because this is in around about uh, 1999 at this stage. And the internet was really starting to um, fire up, I suppose. And there are huge creative opportunities online. And what most agencies at that time were doing was starting their own internets. Mm. They weren't even digital agencies, but specialist internet agencies, typically by putting an I in front of it. So it might have been IDDB or iGeorge. That makes me shudder. That's right. And and I, I, I had a chip on my shoulder about that as well because I was a pretty ambitious, creative 27-year-old at that time and I thought that it should all be under the one umbrella. And I guess I made that well-known Pats, and so I was just a pain in the ass. When I look back, I'm pretty embarrassed at, at the what a cliche I was as the difficult to work with senior creative. <laughs> Did you know from from then when you kind of started working at those agencies that that you wanted to do your own thing and start your own agency? When did that sort of pop up? Well, I think I had an inkling along the way because while I had been doing the rounds, certainly as a freelancer, I ended up working with a number of independent agencies. And the thing I really noticed, they were all smaller independents. At, at certainly at that stage, there were a couple of very big agencies in Melbourne, one of which was uh, George Pats, and DDB was very big as well. And the independents were all pretty small. And as a result, you had these very small, you know, very much kind of fun and family-like independent cultures. And there's no question the smaller independents were kind of more fun places to work. But also I got to work directly with the, the principals, uh, the founders of those agencies, and I work in a big agency barely even got to, to see or often meet the CEO or the MD, um, let alone even my own ECD sometimes. And so working directly with the founders at this small independent certainly made me me think, well, you know, I could maybe do that one day. You know, that they, they, they weren't necessarily uh, these kind of almost godlike <laughs> characters <laughs> that when you're a junior in a big a big agency, you know, it felt like the senior management was. So yeah, I had an inkling, I think by the time I, I got to, back to George Pats the second time around. And you were just 28 when you founded Smart. At that time, were you were you filled with fear or with fearlessness, would you say? <laughs> Probably a, a combination of the two, I think. Um, I, I'd add cluelessness as well because, again, I'd worked in a lot of agencies, but I certainly never, never run uh, an agency or a business. And I was genuinely just clueless about how to, do that. But again, having worked with a few other people, I thought, well, I can't be that hard. And obviously I never really appreciated until I was doing it myself, actually how hard it can be. But to be honest, at 28, you know, I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't really have any 
commitments probably other than a car loan or something like that <laughs> so there wasn't there wasn't too much to be fearful of you know mm-hmm. I always felt like well I'd had a successful creative career and freelance career and if, if it all turned to shit you know then oh sorry I probably shouldn't be that's all right we're not on the radio <laughs> okay well there you go <laughs> um but but that was very much my thinking look if, if this all turns to shit then uh, I can I, I've got a, a creative career that I can fall back on I've always been already been headhunted back once to uh, one of those agencies. So I always knew that, that I could do that again. And you've spoken out quite a bit, certainly previously, about the agency model and your frustration with it. Having worked, you know, at YNR, JWT and DDB and later becoming the CEO of McCann, when was it that you first became frustrated with the agency model and what was it that, that kind of fueled that frustration? Well, to be honest, it was it was before I'd even started Smart. This was definitely part of the impetus for me wanting to start my own agency was because uh, I suppose I had two motivations. Number one was I wanted to be able to kind of work on these um, uh, digital campaigns that, that a lot of agencies weren't touching and digital brands. You know, this was in 2000 when dot-com brands were suddenly booming and a lot of agencies weren't touching them because they thought that they were some kind of different beast to deal with. So I was frustrated already at, at, at that stage. Um, and I suppose I was lucky too that while I, even while I was at George Pat's, I was already w- picking up um, work from some of those dot-com brands on the side. And I, frankly, I, I just reached a point where I, I was doing so much of it that I, I really felt like, well, the, these, these don't need to be treated any differently. I can do great creative work. On them, so I suppose at that point my insight wasn't well that the creative agency is 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 or the creative model is broken. It was more the creative model needs to continuously evolve as markets, as technology, as clients evolve. And I felt certainly at that time, and and I have often since that the big agencies, traditional agencies, are very very slow to evolve as the market and and technology uh, evolves around them. And I think that's still the case today. And I'm just going to read you back uh, something else. When when Smart was bought by McCann, you wrote about the struggles you faced during the merger. Um, in an internal note to staff in 2011, you said, for too long this business has continued to operate as a, as a conventional and traditional agency while the advertising and marketing world rapidly evolves around it. This is not a sustainable operating model. There is no future for traditional agencies in this market or anywhere else in the world. The, tra- the traditional agency model and the layers of management cost and operating inefficiencies that are part of it is dead. Got a bit tongue-tied there. Um, can you talk us through what was happening at this stage of Smart and, and how that acquisition with McCann and Smart worked? Sure. So, I mean, I remember when I wrote that and uh, we I sent, unfortunately, had to send that around to the staff because we had to make make major changes um, to, to McCann. Um, but I also remember writing it, uh, frankly, as much for PR <laughs> because <laughs> when we did the smart transaction, uh, we were approached by McCann and, and the parent company, IPG, because McCann wasn't wasn't thriving in Australia and smart, certainly by that stage, as an Australian independent and a creative-based independent was. So they looked at our, our creative product and, and our people and our growth and they felt, that, well, that's the smart model certainly seems to be performing better than our McCann agency in Australia. And so they proposed this reverse takeover 
to us, whereby they would buy our agency, but we would take over the management of the McCann agency as a a quicker fix, if you like, not that it was a quick fix in the end, but a, a quicker way to address what they saw as the the challenges that were holding McCann back. So the sorts of things that I covered off in that that note and that I did PR um, were the kind of things that we had to immediately address, which were there were a lot of layers of management. The creative product wasn't great. Um, McCann at the time was a very, very traditional agency. And we were specifically brought in, obviously, to address all of those things. But one of the things that we found uh, as a management team once we got into McCann was a, a problem, no matter how many changes we made or how quickly we made them was part of the perception that McCann was seen as, as too traditional. Um, it was seen as too big, which ironically it wasn't that big at the time. Uh, it was seen as often too expensive. So on the one hand, we had to make some rapid changes, but on the other hand, we had to make a pretty strong statement mm. that McCann is changing. So uh, I guess I saw that sending around that email at that time as quite an immediate way to be able to obviously inform our staff of the changes we were making, but also make a broader message to the market that these are the changes that, that that McCann is undergoing. It's now actually a different agency. And looking back at that in hindsight, do you think that that was the right thing to do? And and how did that change kind of progress in the agency? Did it help you? Did it help you progress in McCann and McCann progress the way that you intended it to? Uh. I'm not sure that it helped inside the agency because we had a lot of people from McCann who were still there who obviously were pretty resentful of the fact that these literally, they called us smart asses, uh, <laughs> which is fair enough. So these smart asses have come in, uh, they've sold their agency to McCann. Now they're kind of telling us that we've been inefficient or haven't been running the place well. Uh, and not just that, they're telling that to the market as well. So uh, fair to say I didn't make a lot of friends immediately when we did that. And and that was a real struggle, having run our own agency for 12 years as a creative independent and genuinely tried to to make it a fantastic place to work, and it was, uh, to go into a place where we were, we were kind of resented, not, not well welcomed locally. Uh, we certainly were internationally as part of the McCann network. That, that was hard, but... It, it was a statement that we had to make. We had mm. to demonstrate that um, if we were going to be able to successfully manage and lead McCann, we had to show that that it had changed. And that was a very immediate way that, that we could show that. I think that was almost the only time I did anything like that, though, because I also knew that, it, you know, words can be pretty hollow and we all read very regularly um, in this magnificent publication and others about the management changes that might be going on or a change mm. in philosophy. And a lot of agencies do talk about their philosophy and their changing model and that kind of thing. And frankly, it's all bullshit until you actually see the results of that change. And as we've just proven, they can come back to haunt you years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't feel haunted because, it doesn't, you know, I, I stand by anything I did or said then. And also I'm out of that job now anyway. So uh, <laughs> they're unhappy, then so be it. Um, and, you know, speaking about speaking of creativity, obviously McCann did Dumb Ways to Die, the fantastic and very, very famous campaign. Was being creative within McCann as easy as it was when you were running Smart? What was the difference between having an indie agency and and being creative in that to being creative in in a multinational agency? Well, frankly, it was actually easier at McCann uh, because one, firstly, we'd 
we'd been brought in to make a change and McCann wanted to see us make a big creative change. And that was one of the biggest pressures that we felt actually after we sold Smart into McCann. And Smart had been a creative agency, but I would say that we we were always careful still. It was it was a measured approach that we took to creativity um, in order to ensure that there was always a strong commercial outcome on the part of our clients. Once we got to McCann, we had to make a strong creative statement. And this is what I was saying before, and that just making a statement about the changes and the philosophy and so forth, uh, I couldn't keep on doing that because then we'd, we'd just sound like that we were full of shit. We, we had to demonstrate that there, there was a change. So we were looking for that opportunity to make a, a real a strong creative statement that could show McCann is, is under new management. It's a new place now. We've got, we've got new people. We're doing new things. And also we are, we're a genuinely contemporary creative agency, once again, that, that's going places. And when Dumb Ways to Die came along, uh, we saw very quickly that, all right, this, this is the, the, the opportunity to really make that creative statement that welcome to the new McCann. It's huge. I've got the song stuck in my head right now as we speak. I remember remember growing up to that campaign. It was it was really really quite something. And independent agencies and this is something that I think is is still is still apparent today. There's there's a perception that indie agencies can't work with huge multinational brands, but at Smart you managed to bag big clients including McDonald's, Adidas and Coca-Cola. How hard is it to persuade huge brands to give their work to a smaller agency? And is it still a perception today that indies can't work with these big brands? Mm. Well, I think it's impossible to persuade a big multinational client who doesn't want an independent that they should take on an independent. It just won't happen. Uh, but the truth is most big, certainly multinational clients, and most big clients do want an independent often on their client roster. It's rare that they necessarily want that independent to be the lead creative agency, but there's a lot of reasons why big brands do like to have an independent alongside often their big agency, or certainly if it's a global alignment. There's a lot of global clients, and and I certainly found this and at, uh, at the, all of the multinational clients, uh, multinational agencies that I worked at. There's a lot of multinational clients who resent not being able to change uh, or be make their own decisions about what agency they're going to work with. So they will sometimes begrudgingly work with whatever their, their multinational agency might be, and then they very happily and gladly take on uh, an independent agency, and it could be a small independent or there are some also very big independents. But m- most of those clients do want to have an, an independent as well alongside the multinational agency. Sometimes that's because they're not happy with the multinational agency. Other times it's it's more often just to, to keep the keep the other agency honest, if you like, create a little bit of uh, competitive tension, mm-hmm. uh, and that that should and can be a healthy tension, as long as both the agencies play nicely and collaborate. And sometimes there's a few agencies on there. Coca Cola do that very well. They always have a roster, um, and different brands typically go to different agencies. It's not often that you'll see um, a number of agencies working on one Coke brand. Um, and and that works very well for for Coca Cola for all of those sorts of reasons. And do you think that there that the Australian market at least is lacking thriving independent agencies at the moment? No, not at all. Uh, since I've been back, so I, after I left McCann, I went took six months off overseas last year, which was fantastic. And uh, <laughs> can imagine uh, since being back, um, 
what I've come to realise is I, I, I miss agency life to a degree, but I particularly miss uh, the independent space um, and, and some of the things that we did really well at Smart. So I've been doing the rounds um, for the last couple of months since I've been back, just meeting a lot of different independent agencies. Um, and I, I think that the independent space is as strong as ever, if, if not stronger. It's incredible. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit, but once you dig, it's incredible how many in- amazing independent agencies there are. Uh, I've only been looking along the eastern seaboard, but across Melbourne, Sydney and Queensland, <laughs> there are heaps. So it's as strong as ever. And after having your lovely time off uh, and, and sort of coming back and looking at the industry with, with a degree of fresh eyes, what do you look for in an agency or business? Well, I remember at McCann, uh, our global CEO, Harris Diamond, uh, once quoted to me or when I was giving a presentation to him and he was talking about successful agencies uh, in the network, he said something along the lines of, uh, you know, there are are three things that can kill an agency, people, uh, product, and and his his other one was premises (laughs) or property. And... uh, and he was so right. I hadn't, I'd never really thought about it that way, but when I had looked at um, doing acquisitions at Smart, a lot of the ones had fallen over because either people were wrong and there were just too many. They'd overinvested in these big premises or the product was just, they just weren't producing the right thing. And they ended up being a couple of other Ps, obviously, as well, pricing and and the like. But those, that's now quite a simple measure for me when I'm looking at talking to these different independent agencies you know i do i look at the people first and foremost um what are the founders like are they motivated you know what do they want are they ambitious but also are they smart enough to realize that the business is is not built just on on them and their efforts alone you know, do do they have a really strong team around them um are they have they made smart choices around things like their premises not in just making sure it looks amazing but actually you know have they negotiated a good deal and their their this big agency space isn't necessarily killing them um, which some people, you know, incredibly do. Um, they'll they'll they, they'll build it in the hope that they will come, kind of thing, and that doesn't always work out. And then, of course, I do look at the product. Um, mm. What kind of work are they doing? Um, what kind of brands are they working on? It was interesting early days at Smart. We we just took whatever work we could get wherever we could get it, and often that was a mistake because when we were working sometimes with SMEs and uh, rather than blue chips. Uh, that that could end up costing us a lot. So I'm I'm particularly interested in in working with independents who are actually working with blue chips and who are doing uh, great work for it for them. And I probably should have should have asked you this a bit earlier, but for those who don't know, can you talk us through what you are actually doing at the moment now that you're sort of back from your six <laughs> months off? Uh, look, well, look, I, truthfully, I don't know what I'm doing. And my kids uh, have come up with the term "fun employment" for me now. <laughs> I'm, I'm fun employed. Um, I, I have a number of different investments and I've made a number of different investments. So outside the industry, um, my biggest is, is, um, Kiki K, which is a, mm-hmm. a, a stationary business, Swedish design, uh, which I encourage everyone to go and stuck up on. <laughs> I've um, got a great, I've got a great um, notebook from there. <laughs> <laughs> Kiki K, it's great. It's a great product. Uh, and so I, I, I'm doing things like that. Um, and I'm quite involved with those sorts of businesses. I mentor quite a bit. Not um, it's not paid mentoring. I've just had since I left McCann. I've had a lot of people, a few from the industry, but quite a number of people outside the industry, 
who've asked me uh, just for mentoring advice and that kind of thing. Um, and I'm I'm looking at different investments back within the industry um, quite actively. So what I do see, having done the rounds now over the last couple of months and seen the quality of agencies, as I say, along the eastern um, seaboard, independent agencies, the one thing that I don't see, though, is is a, uh, an, a genuinely national independent competitor. There's, there's one or two, mm. and there might be a couple of agencies that would take offence at that and say, no, no, we, we are. But certainly a big part of the success that we had at Smart was being a genuinely national, genuinely creative and genuinely independent agency. And that was something that uh, many, agent, uh, many clients at that time uh, were looking for and valued, and I, and I still see that same demand. There, there are a lot of reasons why um, blue chip brands want to work with a creative national independent agency with an integrated offering, which is what we had. So I see that opportunity. So at the moment I'm going around looking uh, and talking to um, those different different independents across all sorts of different areas. So uh, there's some very exciting agencies also in the data space now, um, which there there weren't as much when I was running Smart. Obviously, there's creative agencies. There's now some really strong independent media agencies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there are still some digital agencies, most of whom are morphing into different kind of offerings, though. Uh, but what there isn't is that one genuinely integrated, genuinely national, genuinely creative agency offering. So I see an opportunity there. So that's something that I'm, I'm certainly interested in and looking at closely. Well, maybe it's time for Smart 2.0. <laughs> well, uh, McCann owns a smart name, so uh, <laughs> maybe we'll call it something else. But, yeah, that is that, that is a possibility. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but it was great to have a chat. Pleasure. Thank Pleasure. You. Thanks for having me. And this week is your last chance to save $100 on Mumbrella Audio Land tickets. So get them booked in by Thursday, March 14th. The event is on May 2nd in Sydney and is going to be dedicated to exploring the entire audio industry. Hop over to mumbrella.com.au forward slash audio land to book tickets and check out the sessions on radio, podcasts, streaming, voice search, listener habits and more. But that's all for this week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.